0: Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Chloe Carmichael. Dr. Chloe, as she's commonly known, is a clinical psychologist. Her practice in New York City employs multiple therapists to serve high-functioning business executives, people in the arts, and everyday people seeking support with personal or professional goals. Prior to becoming a psychologist, Dr. Chloe was a yoga teacher, so her practice blends the best of both meditation and psychology to support clients as they work towards emotional fulfillment, goal attainment, and success in relationships. Her new book, Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety, comes out next month. In the episode, Dr. Chloe shares some practical tips for managing stress, how we can reframe anxiety to make it work for us rather than against us, her approach to having a more positive social media experience, and more. If you've been enjoying the Health Investment Podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd write an Apple Podcast review. Reviews not only provide me with great feedback, but they also help the podcast to gain traction and get discovered by new listeners. To leave a review, simply visit thehealthinvestment.com review. It only takes about five minutes to do, and I cannot thank you enough for your support. All right, let's hear from Dr. Chloe. Enjoy the episode. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing, you deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing. There are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm gonna share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness, because I wanna help you get healthy for good, without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one. So visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Dr. Chloe. Thank you so much for joining me on the Health Investment Podcast. We were just talking off air about how you used to live in New York, and so did I. And I tend to gravitate towards New Yorkers somehow on this podcast. And it's very strange because I sometimes don't know that when I first meet someone, but then upon introduction, we both lived in New York. So I'm happy to have a fellow New Yorker with me today.
1: Same here, Brooke. I feel like there's almost like some kind of a magnet that we have, like a homing device where we ex-New Yorkers find each other.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'd love to know specifically what led you maybe even to go to New York in the first place or to become a psychologist, just your story and your background.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, when I was eight years old, growing up in Holland, Michigan, I told everybody I knew that um, I was going to move to New York and be on television. (laughs) And so, what's really funny then is that that actually ended up happening. Um, You know, I just always wanted to go to New York. I don't know why. I just always had a pull there. And um, I guess you know, maybe as a little girl, I just thought I'd be on television, like you know, as an actress or something, but it ended up happening more as a psychologist, uh, providing commentary and interaction and things like that. And um, I lived there, I don't know, 15, 20 years, like a good long time. Um, And I I do love New York. So it's a great place.
0: It sure is. And then when did you decide, I'm sure as a child, you weren't thinking, or maybe you were that you were going to become a psychologist. But when did that transition happen?
1: Well, that is a really interesting question, too. So um, I did actually at a very, very young age also happen to meet a psychologist as a friend of the families, and I just thought her job was so fascinating, um, but then it, the idea kind of left my mind for a while and I went on in life and I was a yoga teacher. And I was teaching yoga on an individual basis in New York City because, you know, just me being there in my early 20s, it was a pretty cost effective way to make money, you know, in my time to teach yoga um, on a private basis. And what I started to find was that I was really enjoying more like the mental part with um, the yoga students so i was designing these customized yoga programs maybe to help them do things like build confidence or find stability or de-stress and with yoga of course everything is about the body and the mind so i'd be designing the physical sequence and then i would be designing the mental meditation part um and talking with the the clients a lot about what they needed to get out of their sessions and tweaking things along the way And I just got so into the mental part and the clients were, you know, really asking me questions about the mind and how things work that I knew I didn't really understand. I was almost getting a little out of my depth. So Mm -hmm. I went ahead and just got my PhD in clinical psychology. Um, And that's how it happened, which I have to say to me is also interesting because yoga is, of course, very spiritual And psychology, it traces to the Greek word psyche, which means spirit. So I do feel like there's just a lot of spiritual work that can happen as well.
0: Right. You sound like the dream yoga teacher, honestly. I've taken a lot of yoga classes, but the, the best ones are always the ones where the teacher kind of incorporates all aspects, like you were saying.
1: Well, thank you. I actually ended up doing a yoga emotion workshop, and that was super fun. I'm thinking about bringing it back online, so don't encourage me too much.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and then I love how you just said, and then I just got my PhD because I wanted to learn more about the mind. But obviously, that took you a lot of years of energy, but how cool. What a really fascinating transition. I know you have so many specialties as a psychologist, and we could talk for hours and hours, but I would love to really just focus on stress and anxiety. And I'm sure there's a lot of overlap between the two. But maybe first, starting with stress. And if you could just address what are some common misconceptions that we have about stress?
1: Well, one is that stress is always bad, right? So, you know, one interesting thing about stress is that. We actually get stress even from positive life events. It's called E U S T R E S S, like euphoria, except you um, stress from positive life events. So, you know, when we feel, you know, kind of a, a wave of stress, it, it doesn't always even have to mean that something bad is happening in life. Because the reason I say that is because sometimes people almost get stressed about stress when they feel themselves, you know, having a bit of a stress reaction then they, they get stressed about that. And sometimes it can help to almost normalize it and realize that sometimes that's just Mother Nature's healthy way of guiding you to take a little bit of rest and recharge time or think about some of the issues in your life and and if there are, are more fulfilling ways to manage them. But we don't want to like always just get um, negative and, and antsy just because we realize that we're having some stress.
0: Hmm. So is chronic stress the bad stress?
1: Well, chronic stress is a little different, yeah. So um, if someone's under chronic stress, then that's, again, different from just saying like, oh, well, you're having a surge of events in your life, you know, or there's a shift in a movement in your life and trying to reframe that, you know, as potentially a positive thing um, or a, an area to grow but if someone's under chronic stress then i might start to think about wondering if if they need help addressing the source of the stress not all stressors obviously can be resolved and in those cases we might just want to really amp up the person's coping skills for stress but you know if someone is under chronic stress i might start to really challenge some of the assumptions or choices that they're making around whatever it is that's provoking this constant chronic ongoing stress.
0: Mm. What are some of the most common causes of chronic stress?
1: Well, it could be, for example, like being in a job you hate or being in a toxic relationship, Um, you know, maybe not um, taking care of your body and then ending up, you know, with a body that – You know, doesn't really serve you. I mean, again, I my heart goes out to many people. I know their body doesn't serve them um, because it's ill, and it's you know nothing to do at all with that with the way the person is caring for their body. But just one example of ongoing stress sometimes is you know having a, a chronic health condition, and sometimes there are ways that we can manage that instead of just having to live with the stress.
0: Right. What are some of the coping skills that are best? To kind of try first for, let's say, chronic stress, some of those things that you just mentioned.
1: Yeah. So, like, let's suppose, for example, that you are in a chronic stress situation that you can't really do anything to, like, change it. Like, suppose that you have a friend or family member that, you know, has, has a serious illness and, you know, you're really close to them and their health keeps going up and down and, and it is a just a chronic source of stress for you, but there's nothing that you can really do about it. Um, so then we would want to make sure that you're giving yourself – opportunities to talk about it um, in that particular example. And I kind of have to choose a particular example, Brooke, because um, the coping skills are going to really be um, situation specific, right? Right. Um, So in that particular type of situation, we'd want to make sure that you had a lot of social support and people that you could talk to Um, You know, people you can talk with about even feelings of anger or resentment um, that might be coming up for you around the situation that you don't really know who to talk to that, you know, a lot of times when I um, speak to someone in that circumstance, they feel almost guilty for feeling angry or resentful, but yet they also just feel kind of burnt out as a caregiver, for example. So that would be how they could end up in an ongoing chronic stress situation that could be helped by making sure that they had a supportive network of friends to talk to, or even a support group, say, for caregivers, or making sure that they offloaded other types of responsibilities in their life. Like if they might be able to afford to hire um, a cleaning person to come to their home once or twice a week to make it easier for the fact that they have to carry meals on wheels, you know, to their Mm -hmm. sick relative, for example. So um, every situation is going to be a little bit different, but we want to just take a close look at what's happening around the stressor. And see if there are ways that a person could improve their self care or their access to resources, making sure, of course, that they're getting their own exercise and massages and just basics of good self care, of course, as well.
0: I like how you brought up that idea of offloading some of the tasks. Just, you know, that's something I don't usually think about with stress of kind of what am I doing that somebody else could be doing so that I have more time, maybe to just call a friend or talk to a therapist or, you know, do something for myself, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I'm sure you've had a lot of people come to you with the stress of COVID. What are kind of some of the coping skills you've recommended? I know that there's a lot of different angles to that, but maybe even of just not being able to go to the office and being indoors all the time and having your family constantly surrounding you. What are some things people can do right now?
1: Yeah. Well, as you said, everyone, you know, does have a, have a different, you know, particular um, component, but like with some of the examples that you gave of not being able to go into the office and going a little bit stir crazy in the same environment, you know, with your, with the same people all the time. Um, one of the kind of funny things a person can do um, to, 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 alleviate a little bit of the stress of just the monotony of being in the same place with the same people all the time is actually to rearrange the furniture big time, hmm. like just totally like maybe even trade rooms like with some of the people in the house um, to just change up the the location. And that will actually kind of disorient your brain in a good way, which you know will break up that monotony and make things feel kind of fresh again. Um, you know, and as far as like the issue of having to work from home and being on Zoom calls all the time, one of the things that I've noticed has been helpful for me and other people that I've recommended it to is to make sure that you actually have really good lighting, even maybe going so far as to order um, like softbox lights, softbox lights and things. I have some resources on drchloe.com COVID um, because when you're on a Zoom call all the time, Having a nice, bright image of yourself on screen will actually put you in a better mood instead of looking at a dingy, dark picture of yourself, right? So when you're looking at yourself and you're literally seeing yourself in the best light, Um, I do believe that that's a little bit of a boost, not only to the way that you're seeing yourself, but then you're standing out and kind of just giving off a sunnier disposition to other people. And they might even be inclined to respond to you a little bit more positively as well, um, kind of on that front. I also encourage people to consider getting a landline and things like that, just to eliminate any of the annoying things that people are you know, dealing with, like, oh, I'm working from home and my cell phone call is dropped, the network is bad today or whatever, um, just everything you can do to make life easier in that situation, especially for your job, remembering that your job is presumably how you make money. So investing a little bit of your money into that source of income kind of makes sense in this situation.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah. I've never thought about that idea that we just look at ourselves all the time now. We're not used to doing that generally during the workday. We're used to looking at coworkers, which I guess presumably we still do. But I find even when you're on your own Zoom, it's probably something with the psyche, that you're looking at yourself a lot, probably even more so than coworkers. So I could see how that could be a real game changer just to look a little better. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then what about, uh, I was wondering, are certain types of people, like high achievers, for example, more likely to get stressed out than other types of people? Or is it kind of something that happens to us all?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question. So I could kind of, there's two ways to think about it. So you might say a high achiever is less likely to get stressed out because they'll probably be really proactive about managing the sources of stress in their life. And sometimes that's true. That's just as simple as that. On the other hand, a high-achieving person can sometimes be more likely to get stressed out because they're always raising the bar on themselves and, you know, maybe they have issues with perfectionism or they're, you know, chasing such sophisticated goals that and they're always accruing more goals, right? So if if their life seems to be running smoothly, they might even just feel bored and so they decide to then you know, volunteer to, you know, do some other thing, you know, and then they kind of push themselves to the limits of what they can do again, which is what stress is. If we think about it, stress is actually, you know, kind of testing the limits, um, you know, of, of what you can handle, which is actually mm-hmm. something many high achieving people by definition almost like to do. So um, it can kind of go either way as for um, a person's level of achievement and how much stress they have.
0: So are people who are kind of immune to stress, if you would, or they just don't let it affect them, is it generally just that they have more coping mechanisms?
1: Well, that's an interesting one. So when you say someone who is immune to stress and doesn't let it affect them, um, my antenna goes up a little bit because um, as a clinical psychologist, it's not unusual at all for me that when somebody comes in and they say that they you know, are suffering from panic attacks, I'll always ask them, you know, well, is there any stress in your life? You know, and they're always like, no, not at all. (laughs) And so sometimes, and then as we unpack it, we learn that there's actually a lot of things in life that are stressing them out, but that they just have a habit for whatever reason of not wanting to acknowledge it, maybe a lot of times it's actually because they feel almost guilty for the stress. They're like, oh, well, my life is so easy. I have life so good. How could I be stressed? And they won't even really give themselves permission to acknowledge some of the burdens that they're bearing. And then by not acknowledging them and dealing with them directly, they end up having you know these bursts of panic attacks. So if somebody said like, I just don't have stress, I'm immune to it, um, I might be curious, you know, because uh, that same person may also sometimes be vulnerable to also saying, I feel kind of numb and checked out from life a little bit. I don't feel as engaged as I wish. Because again, stress is actually part of the game. Can you imagine mm-hmm. playing like a high you know, high stakes baseball game, for example, and just, you know, not even, you're, you're almost kind of supposed to get a little bit tested within that, you know, Um, maybe again, we might be defining stress differently, but it's just important to know that we cannot selectively mute our emotions. We cannot just say, well, I just don't get angry. I just don't get Mm -hmm. sad. You know what I mean? When somebody says that they just don't ever experience a certain emotion, I'm not saying I think they're lying. I, I believe them that they're not consciously experiencing it. But it also makes me wonder if um, they're really fully in touch with themselves.
0: Right. Probably the people around them would say, wait, what are you talking about? Maybe. <laughs> you get angry or sad or stressed all the time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. When you were talking at first that some stressors actually can be positive, the you stress, you called it.
1: Mm-hmm. What are
0: some examples of that?
1: Well, getting married, right? So it's almost like a cliche that, you know, the woman getting married is a stress case or whatever, um, you know, or it, but but it's it's exciting. You know, you're embarking on a new relationship, signing a legal document, you know, tying yourself to someone for the rest of your life. Um, it's all things that you wanted to do. It's positive, but it's also, you know, it's it's a lot. It's a major shift in identity. Other things would be, for example, graduating from college. Someone is you know, naturally super excited about that. It's what they wanted to do. At the same time, um, they're suddenly at a place in life where there's not a prescribed next step. There's no syllabus. They have to now just kind of go out into the job market and figure out what they think is the best next step for them. So um, there's a you know, moving, for example, into a new house. Uh, we all know that moving is one of life's greatest stressors, even if we're moving into a place that we love. Mm.
0: I guess something I've been thinking about as you've been talking is just that I feel that it's kind of common to just say, I'm so stressed right now, either to your partner or maybe to a therapist or to a friend, but then maybe not to kind of dive deeper into what exactly is stressing me out. And then to try to, like you said, delegate things or tackle kind of each tiny piece separately or the lowest hanging fruit, at least like I could hire somebody to clean the house and that could be really helpful. Or I could get a landline or, you know, an ethernet connection for my computer. So the Wi-Fi isn't going out all day. Is that something just kind of practical you recommend of if you feel yourself thinking or saying I'm stressed, just kind of listing out every stressor and trying to tackle whichever ones you can, or is that not actually helpful.
1: <laughs> no, I think that sounds really proactive. So I like to think about stress from a top down and a bottom up perspective, and what you just described is the bottom up perspective. So absolutely, if you're saying, "Gee, I'm you know really stressed," um, looking and making a list of all the issues in your life that could be the the source, the bottom of where that stress is coming from, and then seeing if there are you know maybe some simple fixes that you can do uh, to mitigate that, that's absolutely great. Um, Similarly, kind of on the top down side, if you're saying like, wow, I'm really stressed, you know, and I feel like I'm managing everything in my life pretty well, but I still feel stressed, you know, then my next question would be like, well, when's the last time you went for a massage? Have you done a yoga class? Do you have any good books? Have you been going out with friends? You know, are you getting enough of that um, nurturing time as well? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And then switching into anxiety, so how are stress and anxiety related, and then how are they different?
1: Well, I think of stress as, we can almost think of it as like a noun. Um, so, you know, there, there's a stress, say, that's happening where I'm, I'm functioning at the, at the limits of my abilities because I can almost barely keep up with, say, the demands of my job. The anxiety piece then would be, um, what if, what if, what if I get even one more assignment and then I can't handle it and then I'm in over my head, right? So anxiety could sometimes be thought of as the thoughts and the feelings, um, you know, around the stressful event or situation.
0: I see. So stress is almost something that's already happened, and then is anxiety more kind of getting worked up over something that hasn't happened yet, but could happen?
1: Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. The stressor is is like the event. Um, and then the anxiety would be like the thoughts and feelings that we have about it. Um, and then, you know, there's a kind of a certain a, a point where it becomes overlap, right? So you might say like, well, um, is, is feeling sleepless? Is that a problem from stress or is that a problem from anxiety if you're having, you know, restless nights? And at a certain point, honestly, I think that there's so much overlap um, mm. that it, it's not really a dichotomous situation anymore.
0: Right. So then what are some of the most common misconceptions about anxiety?
1: Well, one is that, um, is that you want to get rid of it, right? So okay. that is, you know, it's like the number one thing that people will come to my office and say, they're like, I want to get rid of my anxiety. Um, and I'm like, well, if that happened, you would be dead. <laughs> because uh-huh. people, like, we we need anxiety. Um, the healthy function of anxiety is to stimulate preparatory behaviors, like preparation behaviors. So if you're anxious because you have a big test coming up, you don't want to get rid of that anxiety. You want to actually channel it into you know, doing something about what your fear is. The positive thing about anxiety or stress is that it can give us a little extra touch of adrenaline sometimes, which is you know, um, what can give us that zing that we need to actually manage the stressor. So, and I do think it's really important to recognize that that there is a healthy function of anxiety. And the one reason for that, that it's important to recognize it, is because if we don't, then we end up getting anxious about being anxious. Like people say, Oh no, oh my gosh, I feel my anxiety setting in. And then of course they just get anxious about that instead of starting a dialogue with that anxiety and kind of welcoming it and saying, oh, thanks. You know, what, what, what is it that you're trying to alert me to, you know, what, what are you concerned about? How can I respond to that effectively?
0: Yeah, I love that. So you've mentioned people get stressed about their stress and anxious about their anxiety. So I love your positive reframe and not, not saying it's by any means easy to deal with or you know, something that shouldn't be tackled, but just to kind of normalize it, I think could be huge for someone hearing this. Yeah. I
1: would not only normalize it, but I would actually like praise it. I would say like, it's what, you know, in many cases, it's exactly what you're supposed to be experiencing. It's, it means that, you know, you, you've got a good sense of awareness and, you know, that all of the wires are firing correctly. To maybe give you that extra, you know, drop of focus, which is another benefit of anxiety. When we're under, um, you know, anxiety, sometimes we can actually get um, a, a little bit myopic, where we we can get so focused on just only the source of anxiety, and that can actually sometimes be helpful. So again, for example, if you were having a little test anxiety, and you use that to just block out your awareness of everything else except for studying for the test, and stay focused on that. And then during the test, even that little burst of anxiety, you just kept that, you know, benefit of that narrow focus then, then that would be, you know, kind of a plus. Um, On the other hand, of course, when anxiety can get the better of us, um, like suppose like now the test is over, but you're still just thinking about it myopically, you know, that's Mm -hmm. when you would want to make sure that you did some activities like um, there's a technique I use in my book called the mental shortlist to then really train your mind and guide your mind and nudge your mind to pivot and let go of topics when it is no longer useful to think about them. But again, the the healthy function of anxiety is to stimulate those preparatory behaviors. It's not always a bad thing. We just want to make sure that we're operating the anxiety instead of it operating us. Mm.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, talking about your book, because um, I think this is exactly what you speak about, right? How you label anxiety as nervous energy in your right. book coming out. Can you tell us more about that and just how that reframe can really be game changing?
1: Yeah, definitely. So when when I was like starting my office um, in New York, and I was you know really always interested in working with really high achieving driven people, which of course, New York is crawling, you know, with that yeah. third person. Although of course, you know, high achieving people are everywhere. Um, but I think that just in order to even survive in New York, <laughs> you have to have um, like that little extra edge to you. So there's a lot yeah. of nervous energy, I think, floating around in New York. Um, and so there I was just starting my office. And I just noticed that I was getting a lot of people um, that seem to have this, this anxiety, and they were so hard on themselves, you know, um, they, they, they were so even self-critical about the anxiety, or they were so ashamed of it, um, you know, and, and really, of course, as a clinical psychologist, I knew, first of all, there's nothing wrong with having anxiety, it's totally normal, and it even helps in many cases, as we've been discussing, but I was just also really struck by, you know, how how ashamed they were of it. And these were often just the most high achieving people in the world. Um, And I, I started to almost make a connection between the fact that maybe there's something even about their anxiety that's kind of driving them like in a type A, you know, sort of a fashion. And I thought, you know, what if I could teach them how to get all the benefits of this anxiety, but at the same time, you know, kind of repackage it and take away some of the negative Feelings that they had about it. I mean, again, not to minimize or undercut the fact that anxiety of it not managed properly can certainly be very unpleasant. But, but that with with the proper tools and approaches, that this could actually even become kind of a source of energy. And I think a lot of them knew this almost kind of intuitively, but they didn't really know how to execute on it. Because um, a lot of them would even kind of joke. Um, almost in an endearing fashion about themselves, like, oh, I'm so OCD, or oh my gosh, I'm such a perfectionist. And you, know, it, you, you could tell that on one level, they viewed it as a problem, but that on a certain other level, they were kind of attached to it because they knew that there was something about this you know, quality that actually had led them to double check their work, make sure they were on top of assignments, you know, just all these things that were actually leading to their success. And so that's where the idea of just thinking about it as nervous energy came from.
0: I love that. So do you feel like we label anxiety in society now and maybe that's why more people name it or has it always existed? I mean, I'm assuming people have always felt this, but I'm wondering like when my parents were growing up and my grandparents if this same type of anxiety or label existed, or is this more of a modern construct?
1: Well, I think that, you know, in terms of like the the clinical diagnosis and things like that, I don't think that's changed a whole lot. Um, I think as you said, first of all, there's probably a a little bit of a coming out of the closet aspect that maybe just in the, you know, fifties, people didn't feel as comfortable talking about it. So that's one possibility, um, another possibility is you know just that we have more stress in our lives now, although you know i'm I'm not sure I would really subscribe to that belief um you know I, I haven't done a real comparative study about some of the stressors, um but you know I know that um there there were certainly some very real stressors that people were facing in other decades so Um, I'm not sure exactly why that would be, but I think also there's been a decrease in social support, um, at least in some ways, you know, where a lot of us are kind of siloed now in our devices with our screen time, um, you know, especially for a lot of, you know, young people that now are so into like apps and games and stuff. And they are sometimes they're they're actually not oftentimes really as socially connected or engaged as their peers from previous decades. Um, And we do know that social support is a mitigator of stress. Another one, interestingly enough, is actually religiosity. So um, Mm -hmm. no matter what a person's religion, it has been shown in psychology to be a protective factor. So if people are feeling like times are tough and they're able to you know, say a prayer, you know, go to church or their synagogue or whatever connects them to a higher power and a sense of something bigger than themselves. You know, that is a sense of that provides some stress relief and takes away some of the anxiety. And we do know, of course, that religiosity is on the decline in our society. So um, it's an interesting question, Brooke. Um, I can only speculate about the answer, but it's an interesting topic.
0: Yeah, and it was when you were talking about the people who come to your office and or earlier about stress and how some people say, I'm not stressed out, but really they could be. So it seems as if the people who are able to identify stress and anxiety are people who are more self-aware. And I kind of feel like we've been taught to maybe be more self-aware and kind of to name our emotions now than maybe in prior generations. I could be wrong. But it could even just be that awareness.
1: Yes, I'm sure that's very true. Just you know, the social permission, um, as well as just the social trend, you know, towards being curious about ourselves. You know, um, in terms of even just evolution or social evolution, um, every generation has hopefully learned a little bit from the previous generation about you know things like emotional intelligence. And so at this point now, hopefully, you know, we have, you know, more awareness and those types of things than previous generations, if we've been doing our job right of trying to learn from previous generations as much as we can. Mm.
0: I do think it's such a good point, though, that you brought up of how people almost wear anxiety or not even almost, they do as just this kind of badge of shame. And I just yesterday started following somebody new on social media. And they came up with this whole story content of, I'm just going to come out and say it, I have anxiety. And it was just kind of a very negative light. But I love that you've written this book to kind of rechannel the focus into seeing it as something that could even benefit us and not something to be so shameful of.
1: Right. Absolutely not. It's more like I have anxiety. Oh, congratulations. You're alive. <laughs> like, you know, that's, it's, it's a, it's something everybody has, but I just want to underline again, like, I don't mean at all to minimize the fact that for some people um, it, 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 goes haywire, the anxiety becomes outsized and it festers and it gets beyond that, you know, actually normal, healthy level of anxiety. Um, just like for example, aggression, like it's good for us to have a certain amount of aggression, but in some people it can go haywire. Um, and ironically the way that at least in my experience that we keep it from going haywire is to actually normalize it, shine a light on it, give ourselves permission to talk about it and get help with it instead of just assuming right from the start that it's bad and we have to keep it kind of locked behind closed doors. That's when the anxiety in my experience does tend to fester and kind of um, snowball. Hmm.
0: I love the practical tips you gave for kind of dealing with and managing stress. And then you mentioned you have some exercises in your book anxiety. So could you share with us one of the most practical tools? I don't know what you would say about it for managing anxiety or kind of turning it more into a positive or I don't know.
1: Sure, sure. (laughs) Um, So for example, um, one of the techniques in the book is called the to-do list with emotions. And in the example in the book for that technique, how we use our to-do list um, and and dig into the emotions to springboard and channel that energy in a, in a better and more fulfilling way um, is the example in the book is a man named Greg, who is a newly single father, and he was just feeling anxious when he had his to-do list of like going grocery shopping and things like that, anxious and procrastinating and, you know, numb and irritable, and he couldn't figure out why because he's normally a happy-go-lucky sort of person. Um, and so, when we looked at that particular errand of going grocery shopping, I I asked him what emotion came up, and you know, he said loneliness and sadness, which you wouldn't normally think of that for grocery shopping. But um, it came up then that his ex wife used to do that, and so going grocery shopping now as a single man was bringing up that you know, sense of loneliness and sadness and, and anxiety around it, therefore, of for going grocery shopping. And once we realized this, then we could do the next step of the to-do list with emotions, which is to um, create a self-care plan around the emotion. And so what Greg did is he then planned to have a cell phone call on his headset with a good friend catching up while he was doing his grocery shopping. And so what he did there, Brooke, is he channeled that anxiety into a healthy awareness that his social support needed to be augmented. That you know, he was missing his wife, there were certain situations especially where he would think of her and that yes, your social support is decreased when you divorce usually because that person on some level was part of your social support and now they're gone. And so he 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 was able to figure out how to channel that anxiety into that healthy awareness of how to practice better self-care. And then he of course started getting his grocery shopping done and having more fun with it and addressing that need that his anxiety was trying to spotlight for him.
0: Mm. Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is until I discovered thrivemarket.com. Thrive Market is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. You've mentioned social support so many times, and it just makes me think, especially with COVID now, you know, being more isolated and being maybe with just a couple people, again, indoors, disconnected from everyone, how tough that is. And I I think maybe why, one of the reasons why we've all maybe felt more stressed or anxious. Um, And then when you were also talking about a decrease in social support and a decrease in religiosity, I was thinking... While those things are decreasing, we we have this parallel increase in social media, which I'm sure doesn't help because you feel maybe connected, but I don't think it's genuine connections. Can you just kind of touch on where social media fits into all of this and
1: kind of your approach to it? Sure. Yeah, Brooke. So, I mean, I I have to admit, I, I'm not 100% sold on the idea that social media um doesn't really count as as social support. Um, okay. I think in many cases, it, it can, you know, be isolating, right? Like if you're just looking at people's, you know, feeds, and then doing a bunch of social comparison, and forgetting that you're just seeing their life highlight reel, and, you know, you're just comparing it to, you know, your everyday life, um, you know, or if you're, on social media, um, kind of engaging around areas where people can be really harsh and mean to each other, as does happen on social media, because of the anonymity of it. So their social media is not without its pitfalls. However, um, you know, Brooke, you and I wouldn't be talking right now, right? right? If not for social media, Um, our connection in some way actually was kind of born through social media. And, you know, I personally have connected with many people through social media and, you know, formed friendships with them. Um, and I, I do think even almost slash especially during a pandemic, um, we are now connecting more than ever. We're doing Facebook videos and, you know, no, it's not the same. And there are true benefits to just getting together in person. But on the other hand, because of pandemic and, you know, kind of increase in social media, it's now becoming more common for, you know, families across the continent or across state lines to do family get-togethers on Zoom, and these are people that wouldn't have even been getting together at all anyway, but now we're just all getting more comfortable and into doing social media and get-togethers. So I try to think of social media really more as just that it is what we make of it. If we go into social media and just only look at you know people, places, and things that make us feel anxious for some reason, um, then it's gonna be a, a, a negative. But if we use it just to like realize that there are huge communities of people out there that think, feel, and experience many of the same things we do, and we start connecting with them, I think it can be a plus.
0: I love that. So a lot of what you're saying, I think, kind of boils down to self-awareness, either on your own or a therapist could help you with that. Um, So social media, for example, if you're noticing it's really bringing you down, maybe even doing a type of social media cleanse where it's like, I don't need to follow all these accounts. You know, I can mute some for a while if they're not making me feel happy and uplifted and I'm not enjoying my time on an app, you know, I can kind of disengage. Then you
1: should disengage. Absolutely. Just the same thing for real life friendships. You know, if you've got toxic friends or whatever else, just X them out is what I generally tend to think is oftentimes the best thing, not only for you, but also for them. Like you, you know, they they kind of sometimes need that feedback in life of learning that their behavior is driving people away. And, you know, then it even just frees them up to go, you know, find their tribe or whatever. But um if there's anything in your life, whether it's, you know, social media or any other situation that you just know is not healthy for you, um, I would encourage you to take that anxiety again around that and figure out how to channel it into the action of finding better ways to um, spend your time or people to spend your time with.
0: Right. Well, I'm so grateful for your time and we're coming up on almost 45 minutes. So I always ask each of my guests the final question, um, which is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment?
1: Wow, that's an interesting question, and I do love the frame of it—the health investment. Because sometimes it's you know things that may not you know be super pleasant at the time, but they do pay dividends. That's actually one of the things I talk about in my book, uh, *Nervous Energy*, um, is that it will take a little bit of an upfront investment of your time to kind of like learn and practice some of the techniques. But then the big payoff is that then, you know, your mind and your life and your stress and everything else are just so much better organized. It's almost like, you know, taking the trouble to organize your closets might be kind of a drag at the time, but then you just really enjoy the efficiency and beauty of having things the way that you want them. Um, I think that totally applies to physical health too. Sometimes I don't feel like going to yoga sometimes, but then I always feel really good afterwards.
0: Right. There's that phrase of you'll never regret any workout. That's not it at all. I totally botched it. No, that's (laughs) exactly
1: right. Yeah.
0: You never leave a workout thinking, oh, I can't. That was the worst thing ever. It's always just the getting there. But I think you're right. It's true for so many things in our life, for our physical health our mental health. It's just the showing up that sometimes stinks at first, but then it all pays off in the end. Where can listeners follow and find you and even work with you?
1: Sure. Um nervousenergybook.com is really the best way. Um, if you want to check out nervousenergybook.com, I'm also all over social media. Um, I'm currently on pause for new clients. Um, you know, but if you do want to get involved, I have some I have a dating book as well and um, you know, my workshops and videos and courses are all on Amazon and Places like that as well, and I'm again like all over social media. If you just Google Dr. Chloe, I'll pop up everywhere.
0: Awesome, and I'll even do that. So if somebody's listening, if you just click through the show notes, I'll put links to your books and all of your social media, so that it's just a click away to connect with you.
1: Oh, great! Thanks. Um, you know, sorry, I just realized a good one to make it simple is that drchloe.com/hello is like a list of all of my links.
0: Oh, that's really smart. I should do that. That's brilliant. Thanks. (laughs) It's just a one-stop shop. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being here. And, you know, I was just sharing, I learned so much today. And when I work with clients one-on-one, often they're dealing with stress and anxiety. And I would never say that I'm, you know, a therapist of any, by any means or able to deal with that, but just to direct them to this episode and to your work and to your book, um, as a really good starting place. I just, I can't wait to now have this resource at my disposal. So thank you for being here.
1: Well, Brooke, it's really a pleasure. Thanks so much for the chance to visit with you. Well, that's all for today. Before
0: the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis.